Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We're in the third week of this series where we have been looking at the seven different passages in the book of Revelation where a blessing is pronounced. Now, we started two weeks ago, if you remember, with the first three verses of this book, where it is uh, said that those who read this book aloud, those who listen to it, who, who take to heart what is in it and obey it, they will be blessed. And we talked about how we can do just that and be blessed through our reading of this book. Last week we were in chapter 14, we saw that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of enemies of God rising up, it is proclaimed that those who die in the Lord are blessed. We talked about how God's people have a different perspective towards death because Christ has defeated death in his resurrection. We're going to look at the third blessing today in chapter 16. And to grasp the, the significance of that blessing, it comes in verse 15, but But to get our arms around all of it, we're going to cover all of Revelation 16 this morning. And what we're going to find as we open up this this chapter is a lot of God's judgment, which is a reality that can sometimes be uncomfortable. The first verse of this chapter tells us it is about God's wrath being poured out on the earth. If you have your Bible open in front of you, you can glance down at verses 5 to 7. You see uh, not only God's judgment, but God receiving praise because his judgment is being poured out. There's plenty of other things in this chapter that probably strike us as strange, which we'll try to spend some time on this morning. But I want to start by dealing with that theme of the judgment of God because it is not always one that is all that well received. To be judgmental is about the gravest offense that someone might commit in the world that we live in today. And so to talk about God's judgment can seem off-putting, like we're painting God in too negative of a light. And we don't have time to deal with that entire issue this morning, but before we dive into this text, I do want to take a little bit of time to make the proposal that the judgment, or maybe a better word, the justice of God is in fact a good thing. Because in the arrival of God's Justice, we find evil being defeated. The arrival of God's justice means that evil is defeated. When we simply say that God uh, judging sounds mean, we minimize the problem of sin and brokenness in our world, and we trivialize what our God, who is perfect in every way, has promised to do about that sin and brokenness. We need God's justice. Because justice is the way that evil is truly, finally, completely defeated. We might claim that that being judgmental is too negative, that it sounds mean, but if we are being honest, we want to live in a world that is just. We don't want to live in a world where evil is never dealt with, where wrongdoing is never punished, where everyone gets the same reward at the end of the day, no matter how good or bad they have been, no matter uh, uh, how remorseful they feel about any uh, wrongdoing they might have done in their life. We want to live in a world where something is done about wrong, where those who can't defend themselves against injustice have someone who will stand up and defend them, defend, provide defense on their behalf. We long 
We live in a world that is just. And to truly get at the significance of that idea of the justice of God, it, it's probably helpful for us to have a perspective different from our own, from a, a place aside from where we find ourselves. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf was born in the former Yugoslavia and has have witnessed over the course of his life all of the wars and atrocities that have been committed in that part of the world over the course of his lifetime. And he writes that if God was not angry at injustice, if God was not willing to do something about evil in our world, he would not be a God who was worthy of our worship. But he says that believing that God is just, it might not be popular, but the need for it becomes much more tangible when you imagine speaking to people whose cities and villages have been plundered, who have been burned, villages that have been burned and leveled to the ground, who have witnessed daughters and sisters being raped, who have witnessed fathers and brothers being murdered. It's dealing with wrongs like that where we start to get a sense of the need for justice. Well, we can look around the world and, and see that things are not as they should be and wonder if anything is to be done about that reality. And when we are confronted with that reality, we, we can come up with a couple of options for how to deal with it. We can assume that the only way it's ever going to be fixed is if we ourselves do something about it. And, and to that end, run ourselves ragged trying to fix every single problem in our world. Or we can trust in the God who has said that he will one day make things right. Who has promised that he will deal with with injustice, who has said that he will defeat evil once and for all, and in that will make all things new. Revelation 16 gives us a glimpse into what it looks like as the justice of God defeats evil. That God is not praised in Revelation 16 in spite of his justice. He is praised because of his justice. That the judgment of God is worked out in this passage with this imagery of seven bowls. And if you've read the book of Revelation before, or you've heard it discussed or taught ever, you've probably heard of these cycles of seven that come up at different points across this book. Starting in chapter 6, we get this series of seven seals that are opened. And then starting in chapter 8, we get this series of seven trumpets. And then here we get this series of seven bowls. And each time where this series of seven shows up, there are crazy things happening, which, which causes speculation causes people trying to find parallels in our world today if what we are witnessing on the news was already recorded in the book of Revelation for us. And when we want to do that, we need to avoid that temptation. Because like we've already highlighted during this series, this book was written in the first century to the seven churches that received the letters that we have recorded for us in chapters 2 and 3 of this book. And therefore, we are misunderstanding this book if we are looking for one-to-one -one parallels with our world today. Uh, but even more than that, when we read this book closely, we see that, that these series of seven, every time they come up, they're describing the same thing each time in slightly different ways. And therefore, it does not make sense to read them as a chronological order of events. And we actually don't even get every series of seven recorded for us. If you look at chapter 10, John tells us in Revelation 10 that he hears this, this, these seven thunders, and he's about to write down everything that happened with the seven thunders, and then a voice tells him not to write it down. 
So even if we wanted to work through these series of seven in, in chronological order and put it all together as a timeline, we, we don't even have enough information to be able to do that if, we, if that is what it was saying or if we even wanted to do that. But instead, John continues to come back to this similar imagery, to these, these series of seven, to get us to see how God's judgment works in the world. Not in a way where we can put together a puzzle to figure out the timing of the end of the world. It's more like a chorus of a song that John continues to come back to. Maybe every time he comes back to it, he alters the words slightly. Maybe it changes a note here or there. But he keeps coming back to us to tell us the same thing over and over again so that we can get a clearer picture of how God is at work. There are always people in the world at every time and place opposed to God and his people and God is always at work in moments that foreshadow that day when God's final judgment will occur and make all things new. Passages like this one are communicating to us how God is at work so that we might trust him as the blessing in this chapter tells us. And not only is, is John retelling us things from earlier in the book but he's also basing what he is telling us in events that have already taken place in the story of Scripture, especially the events of the book of Exodus. As we read this chapter, we'll see a lot of the things John describes here coming upon humanity sounds exactly like the plagues that God sends on the nation of Egypt in the book of Exodus as he's demonstrating to them his supremacy over all of the gods of Egypt, his authority over all things, and, and through that delivering his people out of slavery in that nation. So as John describes the judgment of God in this chapter, it is not an accident that he's using imagery from the Exodus. In Exodus, God punishes evil that is willfully aligned against him so that he can demonstrate his authority, his supremacy over all creation, and so that he can redeem his people out of bondage and into covenant relationship with him. And in Christ... In both his first and second comings, he is doing the same thing again. He is dealing with sin and evil. He is dealing with those opposed to him and his purposes so that God's people can be delivered into relationship with him. So that's my preamble. We can actually start the sermon now. Uh, if you just want to book off the rest of your afternoon. There is a lot going on in this passage, but it is all moving towards the end, towards the goal of God defeating evil and redeeming his people so that he might make all things new. So let's see how he does that. I'm going to read Revelation 16, verses 1 to 7, if you want to follow along. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, You've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is what it looks like 
when the judgment of God arrives. Not necessarily in a literal sense, but in the sense of how we see these events come about, who we see them come about for, and how heaven itself reacts to what is taking place. When the judgment of God arrives, it should not come as a shock to us. Our God is constant and always acts in accord with his character and always acts in patterns that we see in scripture. Just like how in Exodus chapter 9, the Egyptian people and their animals have oils, have boils, excuse me, break out on them. Here, those who have rejected God and chosen a different path have boils break out on them. And just like how in Exodus chapter 7, the water of the Nile River is turned to blood with the result that every living thing in the Nile River dies, so also here all the water on earth is turned to blood. God demonstrates his superiority over all things, and he demonstrates the consequences of rejection of him. And when the justice of God shows up, it is true justice, as the angel proclaims there in verse 5. God does not have an anger issue that he's letting boil over here that he really should work out with a therapist instead. God is not biased, standing up for the side that he prefers without hearing the other side of the story. He is a perfect judge. He is not one swayed by lawyers in fancy suits. He is not one who's given to be more lenient after he's had a good lunch. He is a perfect judge in every way. And so when he acts, as he does here, we can have confidence that our God is doing what is right. His punishments are for those who have rejected him. For those who, as it says there in verse 6, have shed the innocent blood of his people. God is not a dictator wiping out anyone he decides on a whim he does not like. He is a perfect judge standing up for those that have no one else to defend their cause. And that is why it is so important for us to reflect well on what we mean when we talk about the fact that God is a just judge. He is the one making judgments. He does not expect us to do it for him. And that doesn't mean that we are allowed, therefore, to turn a blind eye to wrongdoing or injustice in our world. But it means that we can live in a world that contains injustice. And we can do what we can to stop the injustice that we see. But we do so with a knowledge that it will not be like this forever. Not because of us, but because of the faithfulness of our God. And because our God ensures that that things will not be like this forever because he is the one who will make the right judgment. And that brings freedom. Freedom from feeling like it is completely on us to right every wrong. Freedom from worrying if we've made the right call. Freedom to simply live the calling God has placed before us. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, verses 19 and 20, getting at the same thing. He says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave Room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, he continues. Revelation 16 shows us the response of God on behalf of his people who have remained faithful to him. So let's keep going in this chapter and see how God continues to act. Picking up in verse 8, it says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. 
They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They're demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Here's the blessing. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities and the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Things continue with the last four bowls as they did with the first three. We still see the judgment of God being brought about. We still see parallels with the Exodus plagues, like uh, with the darkness on the fifth bowl, like the frogs in the midst of the sixth bowl. Uh, But if you notice, there's a development as we move along in this section that those experiencing all this become more and more entrenched against God. Like Pharaoh in the Exodus, who, as the story progresses, becomes more and more opposed to God as the plagues progress, instead of repenting and acknowledging the supremacy of the God of Israel, the people here who are aligned with the beast in this passage continue in their opposition to God. They do not repent, they do not acknowledge God's authority, they do not experience his grace. They choose to continue to reject and curse the one who holds authority over all things, and they receive the natural result of that decision. And as that judgment continues to work, we see the building of military conflict, starting there in verse 12. John says the great river Euphrates is dried up, which might not resonate with us, but but the idea of the Euphrates River drying up would have been terrifying for the readers of this book. Beyond just the loss of that that river as a water supply, the Euphrates River at this time is the eastern border of the Roman Empire, and it's the main line of defense against the Parthian Empire, an empire that Rome had tried and failed to conquer more than once. So if the Euphrates River is gone, that would mean that a freeway has just opened up for enemy armies to ride in, if you can imagine, if all of a sudden the Mississippi River dried up and just anyone from Wisconsin could come into Minnesota anytime they want. It's not exactly the same, but it's more or less the same. 
with this river out of the way, these demonic spirits, they go out, they gather up armies to come and fight against God. And yet, just like how we saw back in our series during the life of Elijah, where Ahab was deceived by a spirit to go into a battle that he thought would be a glorious victory for him, when in reality it ended up being his destruction, the same thing happens here. These armies are gathered together at this place that John tells us in verse 16 is called Armageddon, which is probably a term you've heard before, regardless of how familiar you are with Revelation 16. You've maybe seen the Bruce Willis movie, which is not in this chapter. So let me say a few things about this. Uh, First off, this is the only verse in the entire Bible that uses this term. And so it's usually a good rule of thumb when something like this appears so rarely in Scripture that we don't make more of it than Scripture does. But with that being said, because that does happen, uh, let me talk about this a little bit. First, John is referring to a real place from everything we can tell. Literally, the term he uses there in, in Hebrew means the mountain of Megiddo. And Megiddo is a real place we find in the land of Israel. It appears in the Old Testament multiple times. Uh, But while John is referring to a real place, he seems to be referring to it in a symbolic way. It has less to do with the place itself and more to do with the memories associated with that place for God's people. Megiddo was a place in the Old Testament where all kinds of battles were fought, where God defended his people time and time again. Uh, It's mentioned in Judges chapter 5 as a place of battle where God delivered his people from an oppressive force from which they could not save themselves. It's mentioned both in 2 Kings 23 and 2 Chronicles 35 as a place where King Josiah goes into battle against the Egyptian empire and is killed in battle. Megiddo is a place in the Old Testament where more than one righteous is or more than once, excuse me, righteous Israelites are attacked by wicked nations. And so it makes sense that as John is describing this ultimate confrontation between God and the forces of evil, he uses that location to refer to what it will be like. This isn't a perfect parallel, but if you can track with me for a little bit, it would be a little bit like if you could imagine that the most important battle of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War were both fought in the same place. And then if we were trying to communicate the significance of another major battle, we used that location to refer to it. And John is doing something similar here. As he's getting his readers to grasp the significance of what he's describing, he's not uh, predicting a future battle that will happen exactly as he describes it here, and therefore we, and, and therefore we don't need to uh, always be on the lookout for whether or not that's going to happen in our lifetime, but... John is making the point to us that God will defeat evil just as he has done in the past in a way that brings deliverance to his people. And this chapter ends in a way that's similar to how uh, the previous series of, of seven with the seals and the trumpets have ended, taking us right up to the edge of the final judgment. But this time, there's a difference. At the last two times, it has seemed like as we get to the end that we are at the very end of the world and then... Things kind of reset, and John starts building back up to the next series of seven. That doesn't happen this time. Things are ratcheted up, and in earlier times, the things affected a fourth of creation or a third of creation. Here, all of creation is affected. John is turning up the volume, and as we keep reading, we'll see that over the course of the rest of this book, John will be unpacking the end of all things instead of starting that cycle over again. And yet, 
As we see the judgment of God coming about in these verses, we should notice how what we've seen over the course of this chapter continues. There at the end of verse 21, the people receiving God's judgment curse him. They continue in their rebellion against him. Instead of repenting, instead of experiencing deliverance from judgment, they they dig their heels in deeper. And the parallels with the Exodus throughout this chapter should remind us. As we read the story of the Exodus, there were Egyptians during the Exodus who recognized the supremacy of the God of Israel. And when God delivered his people out of slavery, they went with them. A vast majority remained opposed to God and experienced his judgment as a result, but that was not a blanket judgment over one group of people. It was a judgment on those who refused to acknowledge the grace of God. And the same thing's happening here. God has extended grace to anyone who desires to accept it. And for those who choose instead to oppose God, they will experience judgment from the one who rules all things. And at this point, you might be a little uh, confused because the whole angle of this series you can see on the screen right now is about the blessings of Revelation. And so far, I haven't said much about verse 15. If you notice as we were reading, the blessing of this passage is a word from Jesus right in the middle of everything there in verse 15. It's almost thrown in as like an aside or an interruption or a, a parenthetical comment or something. But, but he throws it in. It, it's thrown in and it, Jesus says to his people, blessed is the one who stays awake. And remains clothed. And that might seem odd, and it, and it will strike us as odd if we approach this passage looking for what it means for the future instead of what it means for us. But if we approach this passage from the perspective of seeing how it reveals who God is and how he works in the lives of his people, we see this blessing reveals how we are called to live in light of the fact that God is just. This passage calls us to remain faithful as we trust in God. In the Exodus, the final plague that God sends upon Egypt that leads to the Israelites' freedom is the death of the firstborn in the house of all those who do not sprinkle the blood of the Passover lamb on their door. And in the midst of that judgment coming about, God's people are called to eat the Passover meal while they are dressed as if they're ready to leave. You're to eat the Passover meal as if if you've got to walk out the door in that moment, you can. God does not command his people to go out and decide his judgment for him. He calls them to remain ready as they trust in his work. And the blessing of this passage shows us that we will be blessed as well when we follow that pattern. The message of this chapter is not for us to get excited about the punishment coming for everyone we don't like. It is a reminder to us that God is faithful, and therefore we hold on to him. We find the blessing, we find the honor of God when we stay awake and ready like a soldier on duty, understanding the urgency of the moment, waiting faithfully as God works instead of falling asleep, instead of ignoring the commands of God, instead of growing weary, instead of assuming that we'll never see him do anything, and therefore we have to take care of it on our own. Because the end result of that path is judgment. God's judgment comes to set right what has gone wrong so that creation might function as he intended. When we shy away from the judgment of God, we minimize the damage that sin and evil does to our world. We minimize God's opposition to that evil. 
And we minimize the fact that God has promised he will do something about it. That's why we need this chapter. That's why we need the blessing that's in this chapter. That's why we need a fully formed understanding of who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised he will do. And that includes understanding how we fit into the equation of this chapter. God's people should not read this chapter and come away with the lesson that God is not going to punish us for wrongdoing because we're better than those who will be punished. We figured it out and they couldn't figure it out. This chapter should remind us that the line between good and evil runs right through our own hearts as well. And if it was not for the grace of God demonstrated in Christ, we too would be under God's judgment. Christ has taken on the judgment we deserve so that we might be restored. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's perfect justice includes his sinless son dying on the cross in our place so that we might be redeemed out of judgment and into life with God. And for that reason, we do what Jesus commands there in verse 15. We stay awake. We do not give up hope. We do not waver back and forth between the side of God and the side of the dragon, looking for whichever side is giving us the best offer at any given moment so we can get ahead in the world. We hold on to Jesus. Because he is the one who will return. And at that return, he will defeat evil and injustice for all time. He will restore all things to perfection, even you and me. And so we stay awake. We trust in God because he has promised that he will defeat evil. If you're unsure about what holding on to Jesus looks like, where you are at, if you need someone to pray for you or with you about someone else, this morning, if you just need someone to walk alongside you through a difficult season, don't leave here today without reaching out to me, to one of, one of the elders around here. Because we would love to walk with you, alongside you, as we follow where God is leading us together, as we stay awake, as we trust in God, looking forward to the day when he will bring his justice fully and make all things new. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your faithfulness. You, you do not abandon us, but you have said that you will make all things new. And so as we live in the meantime, between Christ's first and second comings, give us faith to walk with you. As we live in a world that is broken, as we experience broken bodies, broken uh, hearts, broken minds, as we deal with the sin that we so often find in ourselves, Father, help us trust in you. Help us trust in the fact that Christ became sin for us so that we might become righteous. Help us trust to know that you are at work in us and in the world around us and inviting us in to be a part of that work so that we might grow into all you've created us to be. Help us do that well as individuals and as a church devoted to following where you lead us. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.